We come this morning to continue in our study of the subject, the God of all comforts. As we have spoken of previously, some people who name the name of Christ claim that God does not comfort them, and so they walk away from the Lord Jesus. But Scripture teaches us that God does comfort His people, and the principal manner in which God's comfort is displayed is that He takes away our sin. He pardons our iniquities. He clothes us with His righteousness, and He thereby makes peace with us. It is an exceeding comfort that God should take away our sins so that we might be rescued from the divine judgment that we deserved. How glorious that God should reveal that comfort in the very person of His dear Son incarnate in our humanity. Jesus literally, physically embodies that comfort long promised by God of olden times. There is comfort in Christ's sacrifice at Calvary. We are set free from the fear of judgment and brought before God with exceeding comfort. Jesus Himself demonstrated that comfort in concrete ways during His ministry. He embraced the long-ago promises of God that Messiah would preach the gospel to the poor, heal the brokenhearted, preach deliverance to the captives, and recover sight for the blind. In fact, Jesus read from that glorious passage in Isaiah 61 and appropriated those promises unto Himself that He would bring them about. But note well that Christ and Messiah promised no mere physical blessings. In fact, most of the items listed in both passages refer to spiritual healing, a change of heart, a rescue from sadness and oppression beauty from ashes, and praise to our God. In fact, Isaiah concludes with this promise, all this is to the end that His people might be called trees of righteousness and the planting of the Lord. Thus we find the end of the gospel that those who trust in Jesus and believe His gospel will be radically converted changed and clothed with righteousness before God, all of His doing to and upon us. And the ultimate purpose, Isaiah says, that God might be glorified. God is glorified in the saving of His people. He is glorified in our conversion from poor lost men to redeemed and sanctified people, made beautiful by the righteousness of Christ and His cleansing blood upon us. Indeed, it is required that Christ's ministry and work be much more than temporal physical healing. Because sickness in this life always comes again, and troubles return, and violence and repression in this world recur, Christ's ministry must have permanent effect. He must provide eternal salvation from the problems of men, the problems of sin, and unrighteousness from which flow all the temporal physical sicknesses, captivity, woe, and death that hounds us all. Indeed, the conversion of sinful hearts to know and love the Lord and to believe His promises in the gospel is much more astounding, much more miraculous than mere physical healing from disease. To be sure, Jesus begins by bearing man's sickness and sorrow, by healing them, 
as Matthew 8 relates. But as Isaiah foretold in the same passage, he goes on to bear away our sins at the cross. By this means, Jesus fulfills all the promises of God through Messiah. And not only the temporal blessings. That's because by taking away our sins, He satisfies divine justice and removes for those who believe in Him the ultimate purpose of sickness and death to serve as a penalty for our sins. Messiah's purpose is finally and fully complete when He raises all His forgiven people from the dead unto everlasting glorious life with Him. But in the end, the people in Jesus' day didn't value the miracles of Jesus all that much. Indeed, they murdered Him on the cross. By doing so, in their hatred and rebellion, they unwittingly offered up God's Lamb as a sacrifice for His people by which God justifies us and brings in for us an everlasting righteousness. Thereby we become the planting of the Lord, the trees of righteousness that Isaiah foretold. At the synagogue in Nazareth, Jesus disclosed that the gospel is for all people, while His people after the flesh will largely disown Him and refuse to follow their Messiah. Isaiah foretold that rejection as well. Nevertheless, bringing righteousness, Christ will one day usher in an idyllic eternity over all the world, ironically in part because His own people after the flesh refused Him at first and put Him to shame. As if to pantomime this very truth, the people of Nazareth rose up in wrath and tried to kill Jesus by throwing Him over a cliff. Even in the face of this rejection, revealed by Christ to the prophets long before. Jesus nevertheless persevered in His ministry to bless poor, helpless people, to show His compassion, to prove His credentials as Messiah, and to proclaim His gospel of forgiveness, cleansing, and salvation for all His people. The Gospels tell us how Jesus was moved with compassion when the poor leper came and asked Christ to heal him. If thou wilt, thou canst make me clean. Jesus said, I will, be thou clean. And He touched the leper and He was instantly healed. When the woman with the issue of blood touched the hem of Christ's garment and then tearfully and fearfully admitted what she had done and how she was instantly healed, Christ said to her, Daughter, be of good comfort. Thy faith hath saved thee. Go in peace. In both cases, the uncleanness of the two people isolated them from their families, from society, and forced people to avoid and exclude them. But as Jesus healed them with compassion, He knew that one day soon He would die to remove the filthiness and guilt of the sin of all who trust in Him. These two sick people were examples of the great spiritual healing which Christ would later accomplish at the cross. But better than all that, Jesus raised dead people from the grave. When Jesus passed by a funeral procession in the town of Nain and saw a poor widow grieving the loss of her only son, He had compassion on her, implored her to weep not, and then raised her dear son up right there on the bier. It appears that none of these people even knew Jesus. There isn't any mention of their faith or that they asked Jesus for help. This poor woman had no husband and now had no son, so there was nobody left to take care of her or provide for her. She faced a life of loneliness, poverty, and danger. 
but Jesus had compassion on her. All of these miracles by Jesus were merely a foretaste, a faint impression of God's great compassion in Jesus Christ to the saving of poor sinners. We must never forget as we contemplate what Jesus did for us when He died in our place, that He took our sins upon Himself when He was treated by God as guilty for our crimes and punished so that we might go free. He has saved His people from their sins. His comfort for us is infinite and indescribable by us. Let us worship Him and praise Him for the wonderful comfort He has wrought for us by dying to save us. Now the remarkable sympathy of Jesus for His beloved ones is also seen most starkly in the raising of His friend Lazarus from the grave. We've spoken on this many times. But consider these Four little verses. When Jesus therefore saw her weeping, and the Jews also weeping that came with her, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled, and said, Where have ye laid him? They said unto him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. Then said the Jews, Behold, how he loved him. Now this instance is of the death of one of his very closest friends, the family, Mary and Martha and Lazarus, all siblings who lived together in Bethany and the place where Jesus would go when He wished to have a home life, if you will, a comfort, rest with His friends. This is where He would go to their house. And you remember they sent word to Him that Lazarus, whom thou lovest, is sick, but He didn't go to heal him, did He? I mean, this was an example where Christ declined to heal a person that He loved. And then Lazarus died. And... Jesus knew that He had died. Nobody came to tell Him. He knows all things. But He said that the purpose of this is that the glory of God might be revealed. The glory of God in the power of the Lord Jesus to raise dead people from the grave. And yet He was touched with the sorrow of His friends and of their friends who wept and mourned the death of Lazarus. The Lord Jesus wept on account of this. Now you think, the way in which this demonstrates that the Lord Jesus bore our griefs and carried our sorrows during His ministry in His life here on this earth. He wept for His friends. He wept for His friend's sorrow and He wept for His friend who had died. And He did that even though He knew He was about to raise Him from the dead. Nevertheless, He wept. And that's why it's not wrong for us to weep at the death of loved ones even when we know that they will one day rise again when the Lord Jesus comes and raises all of His people from the grave. The fact that we can know the future is bright and glorious does not mean that we cannot weep at the loss of our loved ones in this life. And as we have pointed out many times, this death is not the natural thing as the world sees it. The world as God created it did not have any death. Death was brought by our sin, by the fall of Adam, by the mischievous temptation of the devil, of Eve. We must not fall into the habit of thinking that Well, death is just part of the cycle of life and all that kind of rubbish. 
and that it's something that we just need to grit our teeth and understand and come be at peace with. No, we should never be at peace with death, not on a cosmic level, because the Lord Jesus has promised that He will save His people from death. As He put it to Martha a little earlier in this passage, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth on Me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And Martha said she believed that. But apparently she really didn't grasp what it was that she believed. But note the deficient understanding of the people in verse 37. Some of them said, Could not this man which opened the eyes of the blind have caused that even this man should not have died? Well, of course he could have, but he didn't. He had the opportunity to, and he didn't. Declined to do so. But you see, these people thought that was the limit of Christ's power, that if you can heal sickness, then surely He could have healed Lazarus before He died, but now there's no hope at all, of course. Nobody can raise people from the dead. But as we pointed out several weeks ago, death is but the ultimate sickness, unless it's reached by trauma or violence. Most people die of sickness, ultimately. In the olden days, people just said, well, they just got old and died. But now we know from autopsies and studies that everybody has some underlying disease that ends up pushing them over the edge into death. And so death is the ultimate sickness. And so there's no limit to Christ to heal little sicknesses or the great sickness. He has all power. If you remember, He already told them in John 5 that He had all power to give life to whoever He would, that this was His right given by His Father. In His humanity, He was able to raise people from the dead. There is a deficient grasp of the Lord's people of His power. We see that in verse 38. Jesus therefore again groaning in Himself cometh to the grave. It was a cave and a stone lay upon it. And Jesus said, Take ye away the stone. Martha the sister of him that was dead saith unto him, Lord, by this time he stinketh, for he hath been dead four days. She's reiterating the complete hopelessness of it. You see, he had raised the little girl from her sick bed, but she was still warm. And then he had raised the dead son at the funeral procession, but he was less than a day dead according to their custom. But now you see, Lazarus had been dead four days, which according to Jewish tradition meant that corruption had set in. The body was beginning to decompose. It probably smelled by then. And this is the significance of Christ being raised on the third day because the promise of the psalmist was through Jesus Christ, Thou wilt not leave His soul in hell nor suffer Thine Holy One to see corruption. But Lazarus, he was already corrupt. He was already decaying. There was no hope in it at all. And Martha tries to make that clear. But look at what Jesus says back. Jesus saith unto her, Said I not unto thee that if thou wouldst believe, thou shouldst see the glory of God. Here is the promise that He gave Martha and that now He was extending to all the people around they were about to see the glory of God in that Christ would indeed raise Lazarus from the grave. And He did so. And there was great rejoicing, of course. And many of the Jews which came to Mary and had seen the things which Jesus did believed on Him. Many believed on Him. 
So this is a beautiful example of the sympathy of Christ, the comfort of Christ for His people, even in the face of death. But through all of these healings and resurrections, these temporal salvations that Christ gave during His ministry as signs, as vindications of His authority in obedience to His Father's will, in all of this, Jesus articulated a deeper problem a deeper problem that He had come to overcome in this world. It wasn't physical sickness or even death that was the direct problem that Christ came to solve. He came to solve what lay behind those things. And that is our sin and judgment for our sin. In Matthew 9 at verse 35, we read this text. Jesus went about all the cities and villages teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion on them because they fainted and were scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd. Then saith he unto his disciples, The harvest truly is plenteous, but the laborers are few. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest that he will send forth laborers into his harvest. I suppose if you are fixated on divine healing and you follow after the whole the whole full gospel heresy or the word faith movement that you really don't understand this text at all because you see he's not referring to the fact that there's piles of people out there that are sick that need healing that's not what he's saying at all he's saying that there is a spiritual malaise if you will not that they are faint from lack of food but that they are faint spiritually, that they're weak, that they are scattered, that is, scattered away from the Lord like sheep who have no shepherd. Now, I think this is interesting from the point of view of those people who teach that libertarian free will. How often the Lord in the Scriptures treats His people as sheep, therefore as helpless, and therefore unable to make the decisions that they should make in order that they should be well and protected and whole. And that their protection and safety depends on external power to be applied to them. And applied to them not because they ask for it, but because they're oblivious to their need. They need a shepherd, you see, to come in and manage the flock to take control of the flock, to protect the flock, to feed the flock, to preserve the flock. This is the image that is a humiliation, is it not, to our pride as members of the supreme species, the human race. It's an insult to our belief that we can organize our lives and make the decisions that we ought to make in order to better ourselves and to protect ourselves and to provide for ourselves. And all this bleeds over into that false idea that all we have to do is just hitch up our britches and obey God's law. And if we give up on that, then we just need to hitch up our britches and change our minds to where we can believe God's promises. But that's not what sheep do, is it? They wander, they run off, they flee in the face of danger. And if they don't have a shepherd to come in and direct them and command them and to do what has to be done in order to defend them, then they're 
without hope, aren't they? And so you see the Lord Jesus is saying that there need to be people to go out and to preach the gospel that people might be brought unto the Savior, be brought unto the gospel which Christ is preaching. And it reminds us, does it not, of this passage we read this morning in Ezekiel 34. You remember that the Lord talks about these shepherds of Israel, prophesied, saying unto them, Thus saith the Lord God unto the shepherds, Woe be to the shepherds of Israel who do feed themselves. Should not the shepherds feed the flocks? Ye eat the fat, ye clothe yourselves with the wool, ye kill those that are fed, but ye feed not the flock. The diseased have ye not strengthened, neither have ye healed that which was sick. Neither have ye bound up that which was broken, neither have ye brought again that which was driven away. Neither have ye sought that which was lost, but with force and with cruelty have ye ruled them. And they were scattered because there is no shepherd. They became food to all the beasts of the field when they were scattered. My sheep wandered through all the mountains and upon every high hill. Yea, my flock was scattered upon all the face of the earth and none did search or seek after them. Notice that this text denounces the people left in charge of the Lord's people as totally derelict in their duty, as preying upon the people that they were supposed to be shepherding, and not setting their broken legs, and not feeding them, and not protecting them from the wild beasts, and therefore they're driven away and scattered and wandering out there with no shepherd and become the prey of the beasts of the field where they are scattered. And did you notice the faint echo of the promises that Christ embraced as His own in Luke chapter 4, which He got from Isaiah 61, of binding up, of healing, of rescuing, of delivering. Notice that these shepherds were completely incompetent to do that. Rather, they were personally rapacious in their treatment of the Lord's people. Then look at verse 11. For thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I, even I, will both search my sheep and seek them out. As a shepherd searcheth out his flock in the day that he is among his sheep that are scattered, so will I seek out my sheep and will deliver them out of all places where they have been scattered in the cloudy and dark day. And I will bring them out from the people and gather them from the countries and will bring them to their own land and feed them upon the mountains of Israel by the rivers and in all the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them in a good pasture upon the high mountains of Israel shall their fold be. There shall they lie in a good fold and in a rich pasture shall they feed upon the mountains of Israel. I will feed my flock and I will cause them to lie down, saith the Lord God. I will seek that which was lost and bring again that which was driven away and will bind up that which was broken and will strengthen that which was sick. But I will destroy the fat and the strong. I will feed them with justice. So here's the promise that the Lord is going to step in to be the shepherd of His sheep. To be the shepherd of His sheep. To rescue them from all these ills that they've wandered into. And then look at verse 23. And I will set up one shepherd over them, and he shall feed them, even my servant David. He shall feed them, and he shall be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God. And in my servant David, a prince among them, 
I, the Lord, have spoken it, and I will make with them a covenant of peace and will cause the evil beast to cease from the land. And they shall dwell safely in the wilderness and sleep in the woods. And I will make them and the places round about my hill a blessing, and I will cause the shower to come down in its season. There shall be showers of blessing, and the tree of the field shall yield its fruit, and the earth shall yield its increase. And they shall be safe in their land and shall know that I am the Lord when I have broken the bars of their yoke and delivered them out of the hand of those who enslaved them, and they shall no more be a prey to the nations, neither shall the beasts of the land devour them, but they shall dwell safely, and none shall make them afraid. And I will raise up for them a plant of renown, and they shall be no more consumed with hunger in the land, neither bear the shame of the nations any more. Now this is the Lord's solution to the problem of the sheep having no shepherd and being scattered and being destroyed, being broken. And the Lord Jesus, you see, is embracing unto Himself this foretold duty of the shepherd who the prophet Ezekiel identifies as David, but which points to the Messiah, the Lord Jesus, the Son of David. That He will be the shepherd who's designated by God to rescue His sheep. To rescue His sheep and to set them aright again and put them in a place where none shall make them afraid. And you remember in John 10, the Lord Jesus even more explicitly lays hold of this promise that He is the Good Shepherd. When He told those wicked rulers and scribes and Pharisees that He was the Good Shepherd, they knew He was appropriating this text from Ezekiel 34. And they knew that they were the bad shepherds that were condemned by God. And of course, they didn't like that. And one of the reasons they tried to kill him again at the end of that text. But he said that God gave him the sheep and that the only people that would trust in him were the sheep that God had given him. And that his sheep would hear his voice and he knew his sheep and they would follow him. And He gives them eternal life and none of them should perish. But already in that same text, He had said that He lays down His life for the sheep. He lays it down and He takes it up again of His own will. This is the right I've been given by my Father, the Lord Jesus told those people. That He lays down His life for the sheep. Well, you see, that's an addition, isn't it, to the text that we read in Ezekiel 34. Now we understand the true measure of Christ as the shepherd to rescue the poor people, the poor helpless sheep, to comfort them, to give them strength, to save them, to heal them. It's not talking primarily about rescue from physical violence or disease. It's speaking of a spiritual healing by the dying for them on the cross to take away their sins. But no amount of miracles alone could save Israel because of its sin. Isaiah had foretold in olden times, He is despised and we esteem Him not. But Jesus intended to do far greater than the healing of the sick. He intended to heal the souls and hearts of poor lost people. 
And we see this in the passage we read in Mark chapter 2, where the sick of the palsy is lowered down through a hole in the roof. Whenever I read that, I always wonder, well, what about the leaks? Hope they had a good roofing person to come back in and put those tiles down. Because this is the worst thing about a building is that the roof leaks. Now they've broken it up. But they let him down on a litter in front of Jesus while he was teaching the people. You remember this text. When Jesus saw their faith, he said unto the sick of the palsy, Son, thy sins be forgiven thee. Now here Jesus is putting His finger on the real problem this poor man has. The problem is not His lameness. The problem for all of us is not our physical ailments per se. The problem is His sin. He takes this opportunity to forgive this man of his sin and to make the point that He has the power to forgive sin. And He says, Certain of the scribes sitting there reasoned in their hearts, why does this man thus speak blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God only? And they were perfectly right. Only God can forgive sin. But they failed to recognize that Jesus is the Son of God. He's the second person of the Godhead. He's God manifest in the flesh. He can forgive sins because He's God. And more to the point, He forgives sins because He pays the price for the sin for divine justice at Calvary. So of course He can forgive sins. These people, of course, didn't like that idea. And immediately when Jesus perceived in His Spirit that they so reasoned within themselves, He said unto them, Why reason ye these things in your hearts? Whither is it easier to say to the sick of the palsy, Thy sins be forgiven thee, or to say, Arise and take up thy bed and walk? Now here we have a funny challenge because... What Jesus is saying here is anybody can say your sins are forgiven you because you don't have to show any results, you see. But who can say, arise, take up your bed and walk? Because if the person doesn't arise, take up their bed and walk, then you're shown to be a liar. And so he's making that point. The hard thing, physically speaking, is to heal somebody of some overt physical illness. But the true hard thing is to take away their sins. So which which does the Son of Man have the power to do? It reminds us of that story about the two friends, Jake and Amos, walking down the dusty road. After their conversation kind of dried up, Jake turns to Amos and says, Amos, so let me ask you a question. If you had $2 million, would you give me $1 million? And Amos says, oh, Jake, you know, we're best of friends. If I had $2 million, I'd sure give you half of it. So, well, that's good to know. You're a good friend indeed. Now, a few minutes later, Jake says, Amos, let me ask you another question. If you had two white Cadillacs, would you give me one? He said, oh, Jake, you know if I had two white Cadillacs, you're, you're my best friend. Of course I'd give you one. He said, well, that's really good to know. Then a few minutes later, he says, Amos, let me ask you one more question. If you had two hogs, would you give me one? And Amos says, oh, Jake, you know I got two hogs. You see, it's easy to promise things that you don't ever have to fulfill or that there's no proof that you've fulfilled until long, long, long later after everybody's forgot what the promise was. But here Jesus is pointing out that while it's impossible for a man to forgive sins, it's also impossible for a man to heal a lame person. 
But which is easier to say, which is easier to mouth, is that your sins are forgiven. Then look what he says. But that ye may know that the Son of Man hath power on earth to forgive sins. Then saith he to the sick of the palsy, I say unto you, Arise, take up your bed, and go your way into your house. And immediately he arose, took up his bed, and went forth before them all. So you see, Jesus is saying by doing the lesser and demonstrating it, you can be sure I can do the greater because the lesser is impossible to do. And the greater is a promise that I can make that can't be seen, but you can be sure that it's real. You see where Jesus puts the primacy of what's the most important. It's the forgiveness of our sins that's the most important. Not the healing of some temporal infirmity. And these people need to understand what Jesus is really all about. He's all about forgiving the sins of His people who trust in Him. And then all the rest will follow as a natural course, won't it? All the rest will follow. One day He'll raise us up. Our poor, cold, dead bodies will be made like His glorious body. We'll sin and sigh no more. Behind us all of sorrow, naught but joy before. A joy in our Redeemer as we to Him draw nigh in the crowning day that's coming by and by. And so, Christ makes it clear He showed great compassion for people in their physical ailments and predicaments, all the while knowing and teaching that these problems were but the fruit of sin in us and sin in the world. As Isaiah had prophesied, Christ would not stop at carrying our sicknesses and our sorrows. He would carry our sins away on His body and bring in eternal salvation for those who trust Him. And that is the ultimate comfort of the Lord Jesus. And that He promised during His ministry that He would raise His people from the dead. That He would take away our sins. That by His blood shedding on the cross, He would execute the new covenant for the remission of our sins. That He came to give His life a ransom for many that He would fulfill all that the prophets foretold in His grief and in His persecution by the people. All that they foretold. He would bear away the sins of His people. He would justify many, as Isaiah put it, for He shall bear their iniquities. And so He did. Christ understands and has the proper perspective about the healings and the forgiveness of sin as the chief duty and the chief glory and the chief benefit and the chief comfort for all of us. One recalls that great verse right before He went to the cross. John 13 at verse 1, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that His hour was come, that He should depart out of this world unto the Father, having loved His own that were in the world, He loved them unto the end. This is our Redeemer. This is what He has done for us. He has loved us to the end. And in fact, beyond the end of all time, all through eternity, we are loved by the Lord Jesus. 
And He has taken away our sin. And that is our great comfort. And one day He will take away all the trouble of His people when He raises us in power and glory. Well, let's give thanks for the Lord's table. He left us this table to remind us over and over again of what He did for us. How He died to take away our sin. How He shed His blood for the forgiveness of our sin. And it is to be celebrated because it is a thing of great rejoicing. Great power, great glory to Christ and worship to God our Father who delivered Him up that we might be saved. I'd like to ask Brother Whitten if he'd give thanks for the bread that pictures the body of Christ broken for us. And the Scriptures tell us that on the night our Lord Jesus was betrayed, He took the bread and He blessed it and He broke it and He said, Take and eat. This is My body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of Me. Let's give thanks for the cup that pictures the blood of the Lord Jesus shed to make atonement for our sin. O God, our Father, we come to You rejoicing in the work of Your dear Son that He came into this world and showed His compassion for His people and showed His love for His people and did many miracles and wondrous things for His people. But we thank You most of all for the death that He died to save His people from our sins and that He understood that the physical healing was not nearly enough for what glorious purposes He had according to Your will. We thank You that He was obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. We thank You that He was willing to be associated with our sins, to bear them in His own body on the tree, to be accused, to be treated as guilty in our place, and to be judged as guilty in our place. He should bear our sins in such an intimate and horrible way. He, the perfect, holy Son of God, the perfect sacrifice, the Lamb without spot and without blemish, Your Lamb slain for the sake of Your people. We thank You that He was willing to do that for us, willing to be obedient to You, that You might accomplish Your purposes in saving Your people, that You might be glorified, that Christ might be glorified, and that we might glorify Him even as we do this day. We thank You for this cup that pictures that blood that was poured out by which He executes the new covenant. The promise that You would not remember our sins against us anymore. The promise that You would cause us all to know the Lord. We who've trusted in Christ, we shall know the Lord. And Lord, we pray that You would fill our hearts with more knowledge of Your truth and of Your law and of Your promises, of Your Word and that we would be obedient sheep to follow after Christ, the shepherd that You've ordained for the saving of Your people. Thank You for the cup that shows the picture of His blood, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The Scriptures tell us after they had supped that He took the cup and He blessed it. And He said, Drink ye all of it. This cup is the new covenant in My blood for the remission of sin. Do it as often as ye do it in remembrance of Me. And the Scriptures tell us that as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we do preach the Lord's death until He comes. Let's all stand and sing number 124 
in the black book, the Holy One who knew no sin, God made Him sin for us. The Savior died our souls to win upon the shameful cross. His precious blood alone availed to wash our sins away. Through weakness He or hell prevailed. Through death He won the day. Number 124. 